Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Matthew 26. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 marks a critical transition in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus. It marks not only the beginning of the home stretch with only three chapters left, but it's actually what follows from this point on is actually the reason for everything that came before it. It's all been building up to this point. Take the naming of Jesus back in Matthew 1, verse 21, where the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, how will he do that? How will he save his people from their sins? Through his teaching? Not quite. Through his miracles and expressions of love and care? That's not enough. And so we think of a moment of paramount clarity in Matthew 20, Verse 28, where Jesus said, I have come, here's the reason I came, to give my life as a ransom for many. That is how Jesus will save us from our sins. He will give his life. Well, in Matthew 26 and following, that's what's coming. That's what's peering over the horizon The writing has been on the wall all along, but now it's in bold, large letters. Now it's in blinking neon, flashing neon words. It's been said that the gospel accounts, like Matthew, are a passion story with a long introduction. A passion story with a long introduction. You might be thinking, well, what's a passion story? It dawned on me this week that we've been talking about Passion Week, that Jesus is in the Passion Week of what's recorded in Matthew. And it dawned on me that we haven't defined that, and maybe some wouldn't know exactly what we mean by that. A church or a Christian school might might put on a passion play. Perhaps you've heard that. Or you can think of the title of Mel Gibson's famous movie, The Passion of the Christ. Why do we use that word passion? Well, it's actually an older way of using that word passion. We today usually think of passion as excitement, ambition, joy, someone's passion. But when the church has historically referred to Christ's passion or passion week, well, you can think of the language of Isaiah 53 to help you. His anguish, his suffering, his grief. That's what we mean by his passion. And so the Gospels, like Matthew, are a passion story with a long introduction. That's the point. It's where everything is going. Everything before is setting the stage in building toward his passion. 
But our passage is not just about the historical reality of the events leading up to the crucifixion, or even the theological centrality of Jesus' crucifixion for the Christian faith. Our passage also has enormous practical value, we might say. Our passage for today tests us and trains us on how we should think and feel about Jesus especially in relation to stuff, in relation to possessions and money and accomplishments and power. In short, our passage challenges all of us with with this kind of question. Do we treasure Christ and him crucified above all else? Or might things like power And possessions get in the way of that. Well, let's read our passage. The first 16 verses of Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Well, right at the beginning of our passage, we should be reminded that Matthew writes his account of the life of Jesus carefully, strategically, wisely, and artfully, And with theological purpose. When Jesus had finished all these sayings. Remember there are five major blocks of teaching in Matthew. The first being the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. And the last being the Olivet Discourse. Which we've studied for the last six weeks in Matthew 24 and 25. Remember that each of these five blocks of teaching all ended with a a similar transition statement. When Jesus had finished these sayings, 
when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, when Jesus had finished these parables. And then we come to our passage, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Matthew's doing something here with five blocks of teaching. It's reminiscent of Moses who gave five books of the Pentateuch. And hence it's no coincidence that at the end of Moses' life, we read in Deuteronomy 32, verse 45, when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel. Matthew picks that up, repeats it five times. Matthew's been hinting at this connection between Moses and Jesus a number of different ways. And his point is that Jesus is a new and better Moses who is bringing his people into the true and better exodus, a new promised land. Moses could not ultimately bring the people into the promised land. Moses had to die before the people went into the promised land. But Jesus will bring his people into a better promised land actually through his death. It's beautiful. Our passage has four different scenes to it, each preparing us for the coming crucifixion, his coming death. We can put four P words to this. The first is prediction. We have first a specific prediction, verses 1 and 2. Jesus once again predicts his coming death as he has done three times before in Matthew's account. You should remember those. You should know where they are in your Bible. You should have them highlighted or marked in some way. It was in chapter 16, verse 21, that Jesus first spoke of his coming death and resurrection. But then again in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, he added specificity about what will take place in Jerusalem and who would be responsible for his death. Chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, was the longest up to that point where Jesus said he was going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. And now in chapter 26, verse 2, we have a shorter prediction, but there is the added detail of time, of when. You know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus spoke those words late in the evening on Tuesday. Tuesday. We rightly think of Passover and also the day of Jesus' crucifixion as Friday, Good Friday we call it. But keep in mind that in Jewish thought, the, the next day, what we would call the next day, began at sundown, what we would call the day before. And so on late Tuesday, Jesus can say the Passover is in two days. And that is when he says he'll be crucified on Passover. That feast of the Old Testament 
which celebrated the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. God delivered them through the blood of a substitute spotless lamb. Now we'll come back to Passover next week. We'll talk about its significance and the significance of Jesus being crucified on that specific day. But, but for now, for this week, the timing is what is important. Jesus says he'll be crucified on Passover. So this is no ordinary death. This is no ordinary man. This is not just someone who kind of foresees what might happen. Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, I just want you guys to know, I got a bad feeling about this. I just want you to know, things could go sideways. No, he knows exactly what is going to happen. He is walking straight toward what is inevitably before him. It's all on his timetable. It's all according to plan. My father planned it all, as we sang earlier. After all, Jesus is the son of man. Remember that phrase from last week? Matthew 25, verse 31, spoke of the son of man one day coming in glory with his angels, and he will sit on his glorious throne and assemble all the nations before him in judgment. That's the son of man. That's who Jesus is. And before he comes like that, that same son of man will be crucified. Crucified. As Peter later put it, it's suffering first, then glory. Suffering first, then glory. So though the son of man will be crucified at the hands of sinful men, Jesus is He's in the driver's seat. His predictions, predictions of the precise day, the precise place, the precise players, the precise means of his death, crucifixion, all that suggests that this is not just known, but planned. It's purposeful. It's purposeful despite the plotting that's going on at the same time. That's our second P, plotting. There is futile plotting in the next scene. The Jewish religious leaders are plotting together against Jesus in verses 3 to 5. It takes place in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest. He's assembled a small committee from the Sanhedrin, the rulers, including some lower-level chief priests and the elders of the people. And they are plotting to arrest Jesus stealthily and have him killed. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you might be wondering where the Pharisees are at this point. I mean, while there are several different groups or sects of Judaism that have been interacting and being critical of Jesus, like Sadducees and the scribes, the Pharisees are the ones that are they're most in the spotlight, right? They are the busiest of all the opponents of Jesus. And yet they're, they're not in this closed-door meeting in Caiaphas's palace. Well, that's because the Pharisees had no authority to execute 
anyone or even bring executable charges on anyone. So the Pharisees are not there. But men like Caiaphas and the priests and the elders, these are the kind of people who can actually get Jesus in big, big trouble. Unlike the Pharisees, Caiaphas and the elders, they were cozy with Rome. Caiaphas was appointed high priest of the Jewish people by Rome. Yes, this was an era when Rome had inserted itself into Jewish power and politics, and they determined who would be the Jewish high priest. And of course, they would only appoint one that they already had in their pocket. They would only keep one that they had in their pocket. And that was Caiaphas. It's telling that Caiaphas was the high priest for a total of 18 years, far longer than anyone else at the time. He proved himself to be a useful tool for Rome, we might say. A useful tool for Rome in these precarious days. That's reflected in their preferred timing for Jesus' arrest. Verse 5, they say, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Not during Passover, while Jerusalem is filled with pilgrims and there's a bit of a frenzy among them. There were multiple historical examples of uh, some would-be Messiah coming along, gathering a following, and during one of the feasts, Jerusalem sort of caught up in a frenzy. Well, there was a riot, an uprising, even an insurrection at times. And so, surrounding these feasts, and especially the biggest of them, Passover, Rome was on high alert. Soldiers flooded the city. They kept an eye on things closely. And they were ready to pounce on anything that smelled like trouble or insurrection. And so it was in the Jewish leader's best interest to keep things calm and peaceful, to not upset Rome. That's their biggest motivation to get Jesus out of the way, and it's their biggest motivation to wait until after the Passover, to just not stir anything up, not cause any trouble, not get in trouble with Rome. We get a window into their motivation in John chapter 11, another place where these religious leaders are deliberating about what to do about Jesus. And they say, if we don't get rid of him, the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our place, the temple. Our nation, well, our right to exist even in their occupied land. The concern of the religious leaders in John 11 wasn't merely for the preservation of them as a people or the preservation of the nation or even the preservation of the physical temple. It was that, but it was also more selfishly motivated than that. 
You see, these were men who'd gotten wealthy and powerful because Rome said so. And they liked their wealth. They loved their power. And they would do anything to accommodate it, to protect it. And Jesus and his claims and his following, all that threatened their wealth, threatened stability, threatened their power, their status. And so they gathered together and plotted in order to arrest Jesus and kill him. It's language that David uses in Psalm 31. I hear the whispering of many as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But it's also the very concept of Psalm 2, which Janice read for us earlier. Why do the nations rage, the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth, they set themselves, rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens laughs at their efforts. They plot in vain. And that's what's coming. The fulfillment of Psalm 2 right before our eyes. The plotting of rulers that proves empty and futile. But that's not fully apparent in our passage, not yet. In our passage, just in the first five verses, we have a conflict of wills, a conflict of plans, stated plans. Jesus' prediction is that he'll be crucified on Passover. But the religious leaders are plotting and planning to wait until after Passover to see him killed. Whose will will prevail? Whose plan is sure? Well, you know the story. Before moving on to our next P, let's not miss an obvious negative lesson to be learned from these religious leaders. It is possible for money and power and prestige to so blind us that we, we miss what's most obvious, what's most important. It, it is possible for money and power and prestige to so blind us that we get so desperate to protect it and keep it, well, that, that you would even turn murderous to protect it. It is possible to love things more than Jesus, to love money and power so much that you don't really see them. If you had to choose between Jesus and your life, your stuff, your power, your reputation, if you had to choose between that stuff and Jesus, do you know who would win out? Remember that Jesus taught in Matthew 6? No one can serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate the one and love the other. You can't serve God and money. 
Well, we're seeing that before our very eyes here, aren't we? And yet we could also see it in a more positive light with this next scene. We could call it praise, significant praise, verses 6 to 13. Set like a bright shining diamond on a dark background, this woman's praise in our passage stands out against the religious leaders plotting on one side and Judas's planned betrayal on the other. Verse 6. When Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. Now, John's gospel account records this same event, but with a little more specificity. And John tells us when exactly this took place. John tells us, John 12, this was six days before the Passover. Six days before the Passover. Matthew's account doesn't specify. It just says, now, when? Some, some other time. Matthew's concern is not chronological specificity. It's thematic continuity. What Matthew's doing isn't a mistake by putting this story here. It's not sloppy editorial work. Writing history can be strictly chronological, but that's not the only way to write history. And so Matthew pulls this story from a few days before, and he inserts it here for a literary contrast. Again, it's like the bright, shining diamond on the dark backdrop of rejection on both sides. John's account also tells us who this woman is. She is Mary. Mary, the sister of Martha, the brother of Lazarus. In Matthew, she's unnamed. Not because Matthew doesn't know her name or identity but because this too highlights a contrast. Everyone in our passage is named. Caiaphas is named, Judas is named, even Simon the leper, who appears nowhere else in the New Testament, apart from this story, even he is named. But this woman in Matthew 26 is anonymous. She's a nobody in Matthew's telling of the story. She's a woman. And in ancient Near East cultures, that would have meant something different for them than it does in our culture. In an age back then when women could not be witnesses in a court of law because they were thought to be unreliable, a woman, an anonymous woman, sets the example for everyone else with her great love and devotion to Jesus. She took an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. This likely would have been a family heirloom. It was expensive, aromatic oils 
that would be kept in the family either for someone's wedding day or for their burial. Mark 14, which also records this event, Mark tells us there that the oil was worth 300 denarii, 300 days' wages. What would that be in our day today? I mean, $50,000, something like that? That's what this is worth. She was given it, likely, as a young lady. One day she took it from home. She brought it to the house of Simon the leper. And she broke the neck off it. And she poured it out on Jesus. All of it. The disciples object. When they saw it, they were indignant, verse 8 says. They said, why this waste? It could have been sold for a large sum and that money given to the poor. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Maybe even wise. I mean, Jesus cared for the poor. Jesus had been teaching his disciples to care for the poor. He had just taught them about the sheep and the goats at the end of chapter 25. And there, care for Jesus' little ones, his people, is actually a mark of those who are heaven-bound. And so they object. But Jesus defends the woman and clarifies that this isn't just a matter of nuts and bolts or pluses and minuses and dollar signs. Jesus said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Verse 10, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. Jesus says this was beautiful. It was good. It was right. It was right and good and beautiful because of the worth of the one on whom it was spent and spilled. You know how the Psalms so often say this phrase, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. That there's to be some sort of commensurate relationship in God's greatness and worth and the great praise that he deserves. Well, that's what this woman was putting to work on Jesus. And another reason that this was right and beautiful, verse 11, Jesus says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Jesus isn't discouraging care for the poor here. In fact, he assumes that caring for the poor will be something we always have to give attention to in this age. But Jesus being there with them, bodily present in the house of Simon, that is unique. That's a a special moment that won't always be a possibility for everyone. Jesus is going away. He is just days away from being crucified. You will not always have me. So at this significant moment, it is is worth 
a significant display of bold praise. And what's more, what she did was significant not only in its cost, but it, it signified, I'm using that word both ways, significant cost and significant in that it signified more than just what it was. Jesus says in verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. It's like she acted out a, a living parable, a mini drama. She portrayed what was just around the corner, Jesus' death and burial. Now whether she fully understood and intended that very symbolism, we can't say. I could make an argument for why she probably didn't. I could make an argument for she sure might have. But what we do know is what Jesus thinks, what he says about what just happened with this oil and what is going to happen in two days. It was significant praise. Again, there's a sense in which what this woman did was very unique, very special, that this is a one-time thing. This is not something we just try to repeat in some way. Well, no, Jesus isn't in the house of Simon right now or probably in yours either. We know that what she did was unique and special because of what Jesus says in verse 13. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. The gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says here, it will be proclaimed in the whole world. And wherever that gospel is proclaimed, those people who hear it, who receive it, they eventually will be told this story, what this woman did. And here we are today, reading and pondering what she did, the deeds of great men of old. They might be lost to the sands of time, but this one great deed of an unnamed woman in a former leper's house still today is recounted and retold. The book of Matthew has been translated into 2,300 plus languages thus far and counting and counting. And so as the Jesus story is told and retold, her, her story, her example continues to be told. So yes, what she did was unique. It was a one-off. But we can certainly learn some things from it, can't we? What she gave to Jesus was costly, sacrificial, exuberant praise. She held nothing back. She literally poured it all out. She risked mockery, and disdain, kind of like King David 
in 2 Samuel 6, who was so excited that the ark was finally coming home that he danced before it with all of his might, leaping and dancing before the Lord. And his wife didn't like it. She mocked him for it. She said, some king you are today, you've embarrassed yourself. And David boldly and plainly insists, what I did, I did before the Lord. So we too could learn something from David and this woman, caring not what others think, not thinking Anything we give to the Lord is waste. I wonder if you're holding back on Jesus in some way. Maybe corporate worship would be one of those. I mean, you're here, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir. But corporate worship is one of those ways in which we say the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. So what else would I be doing on a Sunday morning? Or as we sing together, he is great and greatly to be praised. Which means we don't mumble through the words. We don't whisper it under our breath. We don't hope that no one hears us. And we shouldn't be concerned if someone thinks we look weird. It's for Jesus. It's before the Lord. On and on we could think of different ways of applying this. There might be times in the middle of a sermon that you would want to say amen loudly, but I mean, no one else is. That feels weird. Well, pour it out. Help the preacher out. Affirm what is true when you hear it and love it. Are you tempted to think that something you do for Jesus is a waste? Maybe teaching little kids the Bible and they don't seem to get it. Progress seems very little. You don't know if it has any eternal effect on them. Well, be encouraged by this, that there is no waste for anything, on anything, that is done for the Lord. And don't wonder whether something you've done for the Lord, however small, would go unnoticed by him. He knows. He knows exactly what is done for him, not just when ointment reaches his head. Well, we must... Move on from this bright, shining diamond for now and go back to the, the dark backdrop on the other side. And here we have, fourth, a pathetic price. A pathetic price as we come to Judas, one of the twelve, who was willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. A pathetic price. 30 pieces of silver was about one-third of the amount that the woman spilled out for Jesus. He was willing to turn Jesus in 
betray him with a kiss. We'll see that in a passage ahead from there. But this is Judas. This is one of the 12. He was with Jesus night and day for over three years. He heard all the teaching. He saw the miracles. He was entrusted with the money bag for the whole group. And he turned on Jesus. Why? Well, perhaps he was finally reckoning with the fact that this Jesus would not be the kind of Messiah he had envisioned and hoped for. Judas, like many in his day, anticipated a Messiah who would come and kick butt, clean house, kick out the Romans, set up a glorious Davidic kingdom that would put the former Davidic kingdom to shame. But Jesus comes as the Davidic king and also a suffering servant. He keeps talking about his coming rejection and crucifixion. And yes, he keeps adding something about resurrection, but who knows what that even means. But the more they're in Jerusalem, perhaps Judas can see the writing on the wall. This thing's going down in flames. I've spent my time with a loser. I suppose it's time to cut bait and see what I can get. Perhaps it was just simply greed. Love of money. In John's account of Mary anointing Jesus, John shows that Judas was actually the most vocal in his outrage that she did that. And John adds this little comment to that point. He says, he made this protest because he was the one who'd been in charge of the disciples' money, and he used to take from it. He used to take from it. We know that Judas, in the end, loved money more than Jesus. Do you? Are you guarding against that? Maybe you'd say, you put your lot with Jesus already. You believe the gospel. You've trusted in Jesus' blood and righteousness. And you're saved. Are you fighting off love of money? Do you remind yourself of 1 Timothy 6? The love of money is the root of all evil. For by that love of money, some have wandered off from the faith and pierced their souls with great pains. Do you remind yourself at times that there is a third soil that Jesus talked about? Where the seed goes into the ground and it looks like it bears fruit for a while, but then riches and the cares of this world choke it out. Don't let it. We can trust God for all that he is for us, no matter what we have, and even when he's given us much. We can trust God's plan, even here in the midst of this heartache, 
Religious leaders plotting, Judas planning to betray, and none of it threatens the plan. All that is actually according to plan. What Jesus, sorry, what Judas would do in betraying his master didn't detour the plan, didn't delay the plan, didn't derail the plan. In fact, his betrayal becomes the very means by which the religious leaders change their timeline. D.A. Carson puts it so well. He says the religious leaders had decided to suspend action, but Judas's offer to hand Jesus over at a time and place when the crowds were not present was too good of an opportunity to pass up. Thus, in God's providence, the connection between Passover and Jesus' death that he had just predicted would come about. And that's what we'll see in weeks ahead. We'll see Psalm 2 play out again. Why do people rage and plot against God and against his anointed? They plot in vain. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He will, he has set his king on the holy hill, Mount Zion. And Jesus will give a reckoning to all. So, so either kiss the son in the language of Psalm 2 and, and find a refuge in him or prepare for his wrath one day. What is Jesus worth to you? Maybe he isn't worth as much as your little kingdom. And so get rid of him to protect your little kingdom. Or maybe you'd say, He's worth about 30 pieces of silver. That's my buying point, selling point. That's, that's where I break with him. If I can just get a third of a year's wages more, I'd give up on him. Or maybe he's worth all that you have, all that you could ever give him. He is great and greatly to be praised. He is like that treasure buried in a field that a man discovers and with joy he sells all that he has to go and procure the treasure. He's the treasure. So treasure him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray for those with us who haven't yet come to taste and see that Jesus is good and Jesus is a treasure. Perhaps they haven't yet come to put their hope in Jesus' blood and righteousness, his death and resurrection. Perhaps today would be a day that they would confess him and that they would renounce all else as they turn to him. And for those of us who have come to believe that, Lord, to trust in Jesus, to find him a treasure. May we continue to treasure him. May we continue to be exuberant and, dare we say, careless in our praise of him. May we find our worth, not in what we do, not in what we have, but in Jesus alone. We pray in his name. Amen.